guys, we are here. Okay, so before we officially get started, I just wanted to take a second to thank you all so much um, for agreeing to join me on a Sunday, because I know everybody's trying to mind their business, practice self-care as best as we can. So just thank you. And of course, I'm going to go ahead and formally introduce the two of you. Is everybody's audio good? Yes, I'm good to go. All right, cool. Okay, so everybody who's tuning in, thank you so much for coming back to the Undocumented Black Girl podcast with yours truly, Danae Joseph. Today, we are going to have a podcast about community in the age of COVID, COVID-19 or coronavirus. Um, And I really wanted to do this because I think there's been a lot of fear. There's been a lot of misinformation on the part of either local governments, but absolutely also this administration. And I just wanted to hear straight from the people who are one impacted at the forefront of the work that's being done to address this issue, um, but also to talk about what's working right now um, as far as the policies that are being pushed out to help the communities that are directly impacted by this issue. So the two incredible women that I have joining me today um, are Angie Rivera and Dr. And I must say doctor, because as of Friday, she successfully <laughs> defended her PhD, and that is Dr. Aisha Khan. So Angie Rivera is an organizer, activist, advocate, fierce, and empowered woman who is the co-executive director of the New York State Youth Leadership Council, which is the first undocumented youth-led organization in New York. And uh, if my girl wasn't busy enough, she somehow, some way, manages to find time to grace the likes of people like Adam Levine in music videos. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it, okay? <laughs> so welcome, Angie. Thank you for having me. And the next person is Dr. Aisha Khan. Um, Dr. Khan is a doctor of infectious diseases and microbiology. Um, like I said, congratulations on successfully defending your PhD this past Friday. And I've been blessed to know Aisha since our undergraduate days at UCLA, where I'd like to believe that we served up frequent doses of what Congressman John Lewis likes to call good trouble. (laughs) Aisha is a force and in my mind social justice just runs through her veins and I'd just like to thank um, Dr. Khan for joining us on this podcast today as well. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And first things first, before we get into the nitty gritty of COVID-19 or coronavirus, I just wanted to take a second to check in. How are you both doing? I know everybody is expected to practice social distancing. And for a lot of the extroverts, we're in fetal position, whereas I think the introverts are thriving right now. So how are you both doing in this age of social distancing? I think we could start with Dr. Khan, if you'd like to go. Sure. Um, So I've had kind of a turbulent couple of weeks. uh, So I still am uh, working and we're kind of working on trying to get our um, in-house COVID testing here in the Texas Medical Center up and running. And so I've been helping with those efforts. Um, And at the Mm -hmm. same time, trying to, um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, trying to wrap up my PhD and defend So it's kind of been a really odd time to juggle all of that. My thesis defense uh, was uh, over WebEx. So that was kind of interesting, but um, it was actually nice. I thought it was going to be really lonely and my family wasn't able to come into town. So I had to kind of do all this on my own. But Hmm. it turned out that when I actually got on the WebEx and and defended, there were, you know, hundreds of people online. And that is not that is not something that I expected. So I think people are learning to adapt to the situation that we're in and still finding a way to build community across walls. So um, Mm. I think that's what I realized on Friday when I was, when I was defending that there's ways to get around and build community. And uh, still at the same time, I think those of us that are on um, working and physicians that are on the front lines and healthcare workers in general, I think are having a harder time grappling being away from our families and having to stay away. Um, But at the same time, still doing what we need to do. 
thank you so much for the work that you're doing as far as being on the front lines and, you know, being separate from your loved ones and your family, especially at a time where, you know, you work so hard to be able to accomplish this. And I'm sure the only thing that you want to do is being able to closely share it with the ones who have rooted you on from the start. So just thank you for your work. Thank you for everything that you've done. And most importantly, congratulations <laughs> on this incredible feat. Um, and thank you as well to the healthcare workers who might be listening and the essential workers who are literally putting themselves between, you know, individuals in our communities and this virus and making sure that we're equipped with everything that we need to continue to survive on a daily basis while this is still um, something that continues to impact us all. So thank you, Aisha, and thank you to the other individuals who are at the forefront. Um, and with that, Miss um, Angie, what have you been doing to practice self-care in the era of COVID-19? <laughs> thank you so much for having um, So I've been struggling. Uh, I love being outside. I love going on walks. Um, I love nature. I love hanging out with folks and especially the weather was getting nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely frustrated with being indoors. Um, over at the New York State Youth Leadership Council, we work with undocumented youth and mm-hmm. their families are, you know, really impacted by the loss of work and managing the remote learning. We created an fun to try to support some families with some expenses, but need is really high and you know we've been busy at fundraising and trying to meet the need but it's definitely been a rollercoaster emotion. Absolutely. And Angie, I really would like you to elaborate on the work that you've been doing to supply undocumented immigrants with the resources necessary to continue to make it through this pandemic. Um, But I'd like to do that in a second, um, because I really want to offer you the time that you deserve to break down um, how our community um, is disproportionately impacted um, by what's currently going on, considering that many Black and Brown folk don't really have the privilege right to just stay home and not work because not just their own lives but the lives of their families depend on the work that they bring to the table so what I wanted to take a second to kind of hash out is we really have different perspectives as far as the states that we're located in we may align ideologically but I think we've witnessed um you know, what this response has looked like. And I really wanted to flush that out. So with great privilege, Aisha is in Texas, Angie's in New York, and myself, I'm in California. So let's talk about the response, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. How has your respective state approached the coronavirus pandemic? And Angie, I specifically wanted to start with you because, you know, your governor has been referred to as a leader, Um, as far as advocating for other um, resources to come from the federal government, but ensuring that there's work to blunt the impact of coronavirus. So do you agree with the assessment that he is a leader when it comes time for COVID-19? Do you believe that there's more work? Well, personally, I believe there's always more work to be done. But how do you feel about that? Do you feel as though the state has been leading the efforts adequately? What is still needed in New York? Yeah, so New York, um, I live in New York City, and um, I'm sure you all see the news. New York City is the epicenter right now. Everything is really hectic over here. Um, Angie, you're breaking up a bit on my end. I'm not sure. Aisha, can you hear her well, or are oh, you also receiving? Uh, no, yeah, it's breaking up. I can't um, hear it as clearly. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to double check. What Andy, about now? Do you mind like maybe adjusting your um, earphones? It might be that as well. Yeah. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Oh, that's better. That's better. Yeah, that works. That's better. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I live in New York City and New York City is hectic. Um, I think it's a similar a lot. Um, we just Really, they just released a map here about the communities that have the highest rate of positives. 
and its black and brown communities. Um, and then undocumented workers specifically don't have the luxury to work from home oftentimes. Right. Um, there's very little protection in terms of employment, right? Care access. Uh, people are afraid to get treatment because they think that it's a public charge that they could get detained. Mm-hmm. And Angie, for folks that don't know what public charge is, do you want to elaborate on what that is and what it means to our immigrant communities? Yeah. I'm really good at scaring folks. Okay, you're breaking up again. I'm not sure if I'm just the one hearing that, but I'm hearing a little bit more static toward the end of what you started to say. Okay, let me move locations. Okay. Okay, so um, so the Trump administration specifically has been really good at fear in the community and saying that if you're an immigrant person that needs support from the government, you have a really hard time adjusting your status. Um, and so a lot of people are afraid to care because they think that getting treatment for coronavirus or unemployment will impact their immigration case. Thank you for that. I think public charge has been something that has been, well, I don't think I know that it has been detrimental to our immigrant community simply because it's hindering people from utilizing resources that they would otherwise be completely qualified for and entitled for, right? Because one of the things that people often like to say, which is a very common and popular misconception, is that either immigrants don't pay taxes or we don't contribute. And while that isn't all that we do, of course, because we're more than the money that we put into this system, it has to be noted because when you're putting money into a system, the resources that come out of it should be accessed. And I know, Angie, you specifically put up a post, I would say, when um, the pandemic first started to be unraveled across the nation about the fact, right? Let's call it what it is, the fact that DACA recipients are qualified for these resources and in fact should take advantage of the resources that are offered at our disposal. Do you want to bring a little bit of clarity as to what maybe one or two of those resources look like? Yes. So it depends on the but in New York, DACA recipients that have been involved for and I think sometimes in our communities, same around getting mm. support, either food benefits or this whole stigma around public assistance. Um, and so I saw a lot of people on my Instagram and on Facebook, um, especially DACA recipients who were being laid off or facing hard time because of it and could qualify for unemployment, but there was some hesitation around applying. And this feeling right. that like, we came here to work hard and doing things like that, go against our, this immigrant narrative thing that we have. Um, and so <laughs> I was trying to make sure that people knew one, that they could apply, right? That they were eligible and that there was no shame in needing that support right now, especially out of all times. So, yeah, I was trying to get people to remember that they didn't have to be this good immigrant, hardworking immigrant thing. Okay, we do that 365 days a year. I think it's okay during a pandemic to utilize the resources at our right. disposal. And it's literally the job of the government to take care of the people that live yes. here. So, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that background, one, on public charge, but two, for also clarifying for our community what assistance look like looks like and the fact that it is something that is available to us. We just have to identify what those resources look like on a state to state basis, right? Um, because I think something that we both know as individuals involved in this work in this movement, but also being directly impacted as well, too, is that we have to often fish for resources. It's often never readily available. Oh, yes. We have to go and do our due diligence. We have to research. I mean, in some ways, we're like public defenders as far as defending ourselves and our right to access these services. And if we pay into it, the bare minimum is that in a time like this, and if not throughout the year, we should be able to gain access to it. Um, but similarly, I wanted to ask you, Aisha, about what response has looked like, or maybe in some cases, it's a lack of response has looked like in your state in regard to the coronavirus pandemic. So Texas has been significantly behind than a lot of other states. And, and the, the reasoning behind that is uh, we are... Oh, Texas. <laughs> we are a very conservative state. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of blue cities in a red state. So, you know, right. in Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, um, I think leadership at the city level is trying to get around that. So we do have um, a, a shelter in place order here that's been issued to Houston and, and other cities in Texas, but it's not a statewide shutdown. And we mm. do have predictions and modeling um, that uh, we're able to do based on the data that we have right now um, to just kind of predict what's going to happen to um, each individual state, uh, mm. depending on the extent of measures that they are taking and implementing on a public health level, and then access to uh, resources and hospitals they have. And essentially right now, um, Texas is uh, seeing an exponential rise of cases every day, which means that at some point, um, and our model kind of predicts that it's going to be any time between um, the second week of April to the third week of April, where we're going to have more cases of severe illnesses than we have available hospitals um, in the state mm. of Texas. Um, so the whole idea is we needed to have gotten ahead of the game and just shut everything down and implemented more strict lockdown measures early enough where we're giving hospitals uh, time to uh, deal with the surge capacity because we just don't have enough ICU beds. We just don't have enough hospital beds, period, to be able to handle um, the level of um, cases that's going to be surging into the hospital. And we just need to give people time uh, to be able to deal with the cases that they have right now and allow people to get better and then have a turnaround where hospitals are able to deal with it. So I think Texas is, is, is really, really, really behind and, and where we should be. And we're kind of facing the consequences now um, hmm. where our hospital, especially um, here at uh, UT Health, the University of Texas um, in Houston is, you know, we're again, we're seeing exponential rise in cases every day. And I think we're struggling both from a perspective of we don't have enough stuff anymore. Uh, we're already running out of basic protective um, equipment in hospitals where healthcare workers are having to, either work without uh, basic protection or use the same protection and just recycle it, even though that's not supposed to be how we're doing this. Um, mm. And I think that's the biggest struggle, or we still do not have uh, testing at the rates that we need to be having. So the problem is probably way worse than we can even tell because we just don't know how many people out there in the community have it and are positive um, and are still not adhering to strict uh, public health measures to prevent spread. Hmm. And I wanted to ask you, thank you so much for that context and so beautifully laying out the issues with addressing this crisis across the board, not just nationally, not just in the state of Texas, but we've seen that commonality happen where leaders have, you know, tried to make it seem as though it's not as dire, not as serious. In fact, um, about a week ago, we had the president literally say that he believes that, you know, we can start to ease up on restrictions as of April 12th. <laughs> what do you say to that? What do you say to the president of the United States telling 
I, I know what I say to that, but, <laughs> but this isn't about me. But what do you say um, in regard to that assessment, right? Because mind you, this isn't a scientific assessment. <laughs> this is an assessment that's being made on the basis of wanting the economy to return back to a semblance of normalcy. Because when you don't have a folks who are working, when you only have essential personnel, like, you know, we're classifying grocery store employees, thank God, um, as essential employees. And of course, the people who are in the healthcare industry, the pharmacists and people like that. But what do you say to that analysis? Um, and I don't even know if I could technically call it an analysis um, by the president indicating that we should be able to ease up on restrictions as of the 12th. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that's that's something that i don't i don't really even know where to begin with because i think there's been so much inaccurate um misinformation that has been directly disseminated from uh the state government and, and federal government that um it's really really hard when you do have organizations that should have the authority uh to be able to take action based on data and science uh, like the cdc that are sometimes incapable of doing so because their um, hands are uh, essentially bound um by by a government that's not allowing them to take the action that they're supposed to um so uh we are not going to be over this hump by april 12th by any means <laughs> um we are it's so difficult to you know accurately predict uh, i think the biggest question everyone asks us is oh how long is this going to last and mm -hmm. it, it's funny because that is directly proportional to how well we respond and right. if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and we're all staying in place and everything does stop the way it's supposed to, then this isn't going to last as long as it will if we continue just, you know, complaining about the procedures that are in place and telling people it's not that serious and you can, you know, it's right. nothing to worry about. Then it's, it's kind of it sucks because it's a cash 2020. We have to take it seriously for this to be the shortest lockdown that it can be and if we're not taking hmm. it seriously and putting people at ease and telling them that everything's okay when it's not okay then this is going to take months and i mean months like well into right. the summer and past um and as far as the economy is just unfortunate that that's the situation that we're in but that's mostly because of the systems that are already set up in this country where we're investing more money on a regular basis in defense and military, as opposed to being able to provide social services and employment benefits and healthcare, and that's okay, really talk about it. Uh, and about that's that. really no. Go on, go on. Talk about that. That that is so crucial. Um, as you mentioned, shelter in place. I really want you to emphasize why it's important that everybody follows and abides by the regulations that are being put out by the localities and by the state governments as to why we need to practice social distancing and stay-at-home orders and safer at-home Right, as opposed the to the lockdown, which is, is uh, has been implemented by other countries that have been able to successfully stop the spread right. of the virus at the rate it has been going. So I think there's a lot of misdirected anger in this country where people are um, honestly pissed off at uh, scientists or officials that are enforced, you know, laying down these measures and implementing them because they think that it's their fault that they're telling us to do this when in fact it's what we can do to prevent people from dying. But the cost is so many people hmm. are unable to feed their families and the economy is tanking and everything is is affected as a result of that. But at this point, we're, we're essentially asking, you know, whose life matters. And um, we're having to come down to these questions where we don't know how to deal with it because we're trying to make the best of the system that we've been given. Um, and it's not a very mm. good one. And it's not meant to save lives. It's not an, a, a system that invests in life when we're so invested in wars. So I think that's the Ooh. problem that we have to put these measures in place and, it, and, and seeing people, you know, me personally, even asking people to stay at home and advocating for these strict measures at the same time, knowing that I have friends that are jobless right now. Um, it's hard to grapple mm. with those two realities when it needs to happen. Um, and still there's a, there's a, there's a human suffering and toll and an, and a lot and a huge cost to us even implementing these measures, even though it might. Um, and I think that's like the reality right. of America <laughs> and I have no idea how we can get around that. But if anything, this might teach us that moving forward, 
we as a country will never, ever be prepared for an outbreak if this is the institutions that we're working with. Like, we will never, ever be able to do this right. Um, And that is hopefully what we take away from this. But knowing this, you know, knowing how systems and institutions in this country work... (laughs) No one, what we know exactly. About Historical precedence um, doesn't precedence yeah. doesn't really tell us that we we learn from our mistakes and just move on because it kind of seems like, and it also right. seems like if this does work out where we're enforcing really strict measures and shutting everything down and people don't die at the rate that they're that they're you know set set to die at this at this stage, then people might even say, oh, it wasn't really mm. that big of a deal <laughs> when it wasn't because we did the things <laughs> we're supposed to, you know. So it's always a it's always a catch twenty twenty. Right. And as we talk about measures, I love that you brought that into perspective, right? Because when we talk about measures, we have to think of it not just on the side of local, state, and national government. We also have to think of it on the sides of these companies, right? Nonprofit or for-profit, as far as their action Mm. or inaction. That's why I started off um, this podcast by mentioning action inaction, because how do we hold companies responsible for whether or not they're providing their employees with the resources necessary to get through this pandemic. One of the things that I've been, you know, taking time to read and research is about the companies. I mean, like the Marriott, for instance, if we're going to call out names, let's call out names Um, like the Marriott, who instead of laying off their workers, instead have minimized their hours to zero so that they're not yet considered to be laid off. Therefore, they can't file for unemployment right Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of policies and quote measures that are being put into place but then if these measures aren't coupled with other solutions to ensure that people are going to continue to make it Mm -hmm. they're not effective one of the things that I've seen here in LA as an Angelino is of course there's a moratorium on evictions but then why aren't we talking about Mm -hmm. a rent freeze why aren't we talking about measures that are going to couple up to ensure that one yes okay stop evictions because why are we evicting people when our homeless population is already so high and rent is inaccessible and if rent is inaccessible home ownership is also inaccessible and as we're talking about this angie i know one of the things that you were calling out and you continue to call out um is the fact that we need a rent freeze what does that look like why is that important in places like new york and california and frankly all across the nation why is a rent freeze uh moratoriums on evictions and all of these other measures in the era of covid19 important to ensure um, that residents continue to survive this yeah pandemic. well there's several reasons um there's been a freeze on mortgages right and a protection for mortgage owners and so then mm-hmm. there could be protections for renters too and right. we don't know how long people are going to be out of work um the governor mm-hmm. here said the lockdown was until april 15th but by the time people come out of that, some restaurants might close. Some places of work might not be able to hire immediately. And there's the real possibility that a lot of families will have rent debt, right? They could have mm-hmm. two, three, four months of rent pile on. In our emergency fund, we had some people apply who weren't even able to pay rent for this month. We were saying that we could help them wow. for April. And they were asking us if we could even just help for this month because some people had already lost work for this month. Mm. Um, so, Angie, what is that yeah. fund? Tell the people about what that fund is before we carry on so that you could plug that. And then, of course, I'm going to continue to, you know, send out that resource as well, too, so folks can continue to. Yeah, get. for what sure. Is that fund? So at the New York State Youth Leadership Council. We created an emergency fund for undocumented youth and their families about two weeks ago. Mm, Yeah, like two weeks ago. And we have raised over $55,000 for families. In three days, we had about 1,500 families request money, which is more than our capacity can meet, unfortunately. And Mm -hmm. people were not only asking for rent and groceries for a month, they were asking us if we could extend that support for more than one month, which right now we can't afford. Mm. And rent um, stress is the biggest thing 
And I see a lot of people encouraging rent strikes, which is awesome. And I also do want to recognize that undocumented tenants have a very different relationship with their landlords and with housing court. Um, many times Absolutely. interactions with court and slum lords can lead to police interactions, which can lead to immigration interactions. So we just need to be creative of how we empower our folks to be able to stand up for themselves and yeah, you know, just have resources and space for people to organize the way that they can in their own building or in their own apartments. Absolutely. And where can folks go if they would like to contribute to this fund and to the work that you all are doing? So people can go to our website. They can go to our website, nyslc.org. Um, and all of our information is there. Or they could follow us on social media, um, also nysylc.org is the same thing everywhere. Um, we just started distributing funds to the first 26 families. Uh, so we hope to do another round soon. You're incredible, Angie. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, not just for the folks in New York, but truly anyone who doesn't know Angie, you have to know the incredible work that she's doing for immigrants across this country. Um, and it would be really incredible if you all can give to the work that's happening in New York so that these families can get the necessary resources, as Angie mentioned, not even for the next month, but to put into reality the difficulties that immigrants continue to face even for this current month right um and to that i wanted to ask aisha um about the realities of how long this can take while we don't know while it is something that is dependent upon everybody right the collective not just an individual it is contingent upon our very cooperation with the scientists and the experts not individuals who have deemed <laughs> themselves um <laughs> educated on this topic and so I wanted to ask you I wanted to circle back and ask you about comparisons that are being made to other countries as far as how they're being hit um and how long it has lasted for these places for instance um we've often heard a lot of the experts including Dr. Fauci who I like at this point I'm like you are you know, the person in my mind who is the leader, right, in this area. And in fact, he is. He is a leader in infectious diseases um, in the nation. And he has often made comparisons to Italy um, as far as our country being maybe two weeks out. And I'm not sure if those numbers have changed. But would you agree with the assessment that the United States um, and who we have to look to um, as an example of what can happen with this virus? and how detrimental it can be. Would you agree that Italy is one of the closest comparisons to be made? Uh, yes, and statistically, as of now, we're actually doing worse than Italy in terms of exponential rise of cases. So our trajectory right now has, um, we're seeing a greater rise in cases on a daily basis than China or Italy saw. So we're doing worse, wow. I would say, um, than Italy. And uh, our lockdown is far less strict than Italy implemented when they saw a similar problem. So um, we are doing probably the worst of all countries that I can think of right now. Yikes! <laughs> Trump did say we were going to get tired okay. of winning. The worst. Yeah. And I mean, we did. Now we did have, we do have the most cases um, of any other country. And uh, even in terms of where this is headed, I think this is kind of the irony of um, the culture in countries, I think, and how it differs is impacting the response. So, for example, uh, countries that are um, intrinsically more community based, where there's a value put to family building and community, and that is a priority. It's always, you know, us before me. Uh, those countries are doing better. Um, and they're, you know, they, they had a head start in that they were better to begin with. Like South Korea has a universal health care system. Um, so and they invest a lot of money in their science and their research. So when this happened, they kind of hit the ground where they had more capacity um, to take care of their people. Everyone was able to access testing and treatment and not be afraid of having to pay thousands and thousands of dollars in right. bills. 
And they had more tests deployed to begin with where they were just basically screening everybody uh, to be able to figure out who has it and then then implement uh, more stricter isolation measures on those folks. But here we don't have tests. So essentially we have to assume everyone has hmm. it, um, which is why we're able to, we have to do this broad, strict um, shutdown as opposed to a more targeted shutdown. So I think we're kind of realizing that the, the foundation of this country is very much based on individualism mm-hmm. and um, putting uh, us before uh, putting you as an individual and as a person and what you want and what you think is right uh, before um, the, you know, before the community, the family. So I think in a country where that's the fabric of society and culture here, you know, your individual freedom, your liberty, your that, that is and not really about doing what's best for right. us. I think this is where it's so hard for us to ensure to to even implement basic, basic social distancing, where we're seeing it's hard for us to convince people that are not high risk to stay at home because their rationale is I don't care if I'll get it. I might not have a severe disease, so I don't care. I'll be fine. You know, even that much, which 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 I think to me raised in the culture that I've been raised in, it's just to me, it makes complete sense to to stay home and if that could mean you could prevent someone else from getting it but I've had to con- really convince people that that's a logical leap you know that I can be safe but someone else might not therefore I should still do the right thing um, that's not intuitive in this country I'm realizing um, <laughs> there's so a lot of realizations that come into the forefront with right right but I think it's kind of it is kind of a, a it, it, it we've been like this for a long time this country's always been like this right this isn't new right. Um, it's always been built on, um, a lot of oppression and, and, uh, decimation of a lot of communities that came before. So I think that this is, (laughs) this is not new, but I think we're finally realizing in the modern age today, even given the fact that we claim that we are the world leader in science and medicine and technology and all of these things. Well, it doesn't matter if we don't have community mentality, right? right? Like if we're not able to really take care of each other, if we're not really able to do whatever it takes to protect our most vulnerable, then it really does not matter. And I think that's the incredible thing about infectious diseases and the reason that I decided to go into it as a career in the first place, because to me, it was always about community. Hmm. And that's the way infectious diseases spread and work, right? If you're not in it together as one, then they will decimate your community. Hmm. And there's something you know, just intellectually fascinating about how understanding how that works. And then also understanding that you need to do both the the cutting edge science and discovery, but you also need to do the social justice and activism to bring communities together to be able to understand why they need to be in solidarity, because it won't work either way, you know? Mm -mm -mm. That (laughs) was a word first off, and I'm going to need most of that to be (laughs) either on my Twitter later or to be on a t-shirt somewhere, but it's (laughs) It's necessary, right? Because people often like to make it seem as though the two of those things are mutually exclusive, right? For you to believe in the science and for you to be of a social justice cause and advocacy that it's mutually exclusive. And I think one of the things, well, I know one of the things that I definitely appreciate about Aisha always, at least, you know, everything that I've interacted with on, you know, social media and with what you put out um, is the urgency, right? individuals to understand the importance because for a lot of folks you're right they see it as an individual decision where if it happens to me it happens to me and I don't have to worry about the folks with pre-existing conditions because maybe you don't have some with a, with a pre-existing condition at home but just because that person isn't in your household doesn't mean you don't have to worry about the folks that you interact with when you go to those beaches right one of the things that we saw which infuriated me um, was the spring breakers right the spring breakers who <laughs> just decided to to go to Florida anyway and go to Mexico anyway because in their mind they said oh well we paid for these tickets months ago so we have to go so you'd rather think about spring break than think about the future viability of this country of yourself of your family of your friends stay home people anyone that is listening stay home because when you stay home like Aisha said it increases the odds that we're going to be able to beat this thing it's when you decide that you're still going to go out anyway that we end up with numbers of mortality that are in the thousands if not the hundreds of thousands because the estimates 
correct me if I'm wrong, has indicated hundreds of thousands as a potential for a death rate in this country. And what would you say, Aisha, to the folks who are saying as a pushback to what you just said, Mm -hmm. that Italy isn't a fair comparison because our population sizes are different? What would you say to that? Uh, my answer would be, you're correct. Our population sizes are different. They're much larger, which also means more people could die. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, it is, it, it, we're also living in very dense urban cities where people live very close to mm-hmm. each other. So I think, um, that's why we do mortality percentage as opposed to raw number of deaths, because yes, you know, we can't account for the population of a country by just measuring how many people are dying. So we, try to predict and model based on how many people are dying given how many people have it Mm. um so it's always a proportion there's always a denominator so we kind of normalize based on that but i think the problem here is people think that this has happened before you know there's been other pandemics before and there's been other outbreaks that this is just something you know the -the run-of-the-mill outbreak but it's not i like in you know in my lifetime i obviously have not seen anything this bad and Same goes for, you know, my mentors that are infectious disease physicians and scientists that have not seen anything in their lifetime. So this Mm. includes, you know, SARS and MERS and and, and Zika and Ebola and everything, you know, we can think of before. It has not been this bad. Um, And I think we're asked to basically take whatever we've done and, and still continue to serve and still continue to talk about science and data. But we're asked to be most often in this country because there's a culture of apathy and be apolitical. Mm. where there's a negative connotation to people that are, you know, that are, for example, for me, it's always expected that I'm supposed to talk about science and answer questions about COVID, but I can't actually criticize the government or I can't actually do anything <laughs> quote unquote political right. when that's like, that's our entire one, one, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman of color and that's my existence mm. and it's hard to do separate, separate that from the, the work that I do. Right. But it's funny that people listen to us and do take our advice when I'm talking about COVID. But when I talk about politics and when I talk about the the candidates that we should be voting for mm. at, a, at a state level or at a national level or talking about how we can prevent this from happening moving forward by implementing institutional change and dismantling systems of oppression then automatically I'm not the same person who came in with the data and with the precision that I do come to my science with right. you know and I think it's funny that people are able to think that somehow we're completely crazy and and illogical when it comes to our progressive leftist politics but we're also, they forget, I think, that we approach our politics the same way that we approach our science and medicine, mm. which is with, with precision, with knowing what we're talking about, with knowing our data right. and going into it because we've put that much work into understanding politics as well because we have to, we don't, we, don't, we don't work in isolation. And it's so closely tied to our lived experiences, right? As a Black undocumented woman myself, as a woman of color for you, Angie, same experience as a woman of color, as an immigrant, we can't talk about any of these issues without talking about our lived experiences, without talking about our identities, without talking about the historical context of how our communities and communities of color, whether it be in this country, but around the globe, has been impacted in regards to these crises, right? We can't talk about it. Let's talk about the response and the lack thereof when it came time to things like Ebola, right? And the stereotypical Mm. notions that arose at that time regarding the African continent. And especially when we think about language that's being used by this administration, how can we not make the correlation, right? Where you have a president who literally referred to people on the African continent and people from Haiti as being from blank whole countries. We we can't not see these things and the commonalities that arise as a result. So that's when you start to see mistrust or like Angie mentioned earlier at the onset of this about immigrants being fearful of even wanting to go to a hospital or seek a test because they're fearful of what it will mean as far as accessing these resources. Yes, for right now, but then in the long term in regards to public charge and not being certain whether their usage of these resources right now will impact our future viability to become naturalized citizens of this country. So we can't, like you said, talk about it in isolation and not make the correlations to our lived experiences, to the policies that are being proposed, to the politics of these conversations and who gets Right. Not even to mention all of our Asian immigrant brothers and sisters who are now where this administration hate crimes. Yes. 
has literally tried to deprive um, our states of resources because of the pushback that we've been given to the policies and to the language that's being used to address this pandemic. And to that, I wanted to you know, shift to Angie and ask you about that. You know, we, we've had this administration literally say wants to put, you know, places like New York and New Jersey under mandatory quarantine. And then you have the pushback by Andrew Cuomo in saying, no, I don't think that's necessarily what's right for the residents. But then how do you feel about these conversations and the fact that people are trying to argue that it's just science, that it's just the president doing his job, especially in an election year, especially when he's referring to himself as a wartime president right and especially when these are individuals who are democrats right holding these offices as far as new york and california goes so let's talk about the politics of your state and uh, people believing that yes no you're totally right and i think for me Everything is very calculated. So Cuomo and Trump have been at it for a couple of days already. Um, I don't know if you follow Cuomo on Twitter, but he I was do. going at Trump about about like his response. And it starts to feel just like political theater, you know, like at the root of it. Mm. It's not people's health that he's worried about because other states are not shut down the spring breakers, like you mentioned. And so there's always just this power play and him always trying to one-up Cuomo. Um, And then Cuomo and our mayor, de Blasio, go at it. It's always this, like, game. Um, You know, he received a lot of criticism for shutting down so late. Um, By the time that this became more serious, it had already spread really bad throughout the city. So... Yeah, for me, it doesn't feel like it's actual genuine care for the people here. Mm. And when the stimulus plan passed, it left out tons of workers, specifically immigrant workers, uh, people who work with ITINs. So it's, you know, the immigrants that are at the front lines, still doing delivery work, still cleaning up everything, are the ones that get left out. Mm. So if, you know, if there was actual care for the people here, folks would have been included in the stimulus plan. Oh, oh, see, we need another podcast for that. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you for bringing that up because I really wanted to end, not right now, but in a few minutes about that and about how we've shifted the idea of essential workers, right? Because one of the main things that I think we each touched on in our earlier responses and in everything that you all had to detail in response to the questions has to deal with a mindset, right? Uh, A viewpoint as to how people in this country historically and now contemporarily have shifted to view the workforce in a completely different way, right? We often joke, especially uh, in the, you know, organizing space about how many of these meetings can be emails, right? Like, did this really have to be a Mm -hmm. meeting? And I think it has put a spotlight on who the essential workers really are, right? Who the brave really are. And that is the people like Aisha who continue to show up. Um, That is the people like Angie who is providing and working to continuously provide resources to these communities that have been impacted so severely. And their literal month, this month, not even next month, we keep on talking about a stimulus check that's going to be out you know, by mid-April, and then maybe another one. But let's talk about what's happening right now. And that is, you know, people are being offered $2. You know, I've seen a lot of companies offer $2 in a wage increase to be able to bring folks on board. 
And what it's showing us is that these people were essential all along, were just as a society, right? Maybe individually, we already knew their worth. But as a society, we're just viewing these individuals who continue to stay up hours and restock, right? And repackage to ensure that we have all the basic supplies that we need. They are the essential workers. It's not the billionaires. It's not the CEOs. And it's for sure not these corporations and big banks, right? Because one of the things that I was seeing with Governor Newsom is how he advocated for the big banks to give 90-day extensions for mortgages um, for homeowners. And of the six companies, one completely refused to cooperate with the 90 days. And that one is Bank of America. Bank of America refused to give 90 days of uh, extension to the people who have mortgages with them. The others agreed. But then, like mentioned earlier, what is the purpose of an extension if these things are going to continually be added one to another when folks can barely afford this month? And to that, I wanted us to talk about the impact of mental health, of trauma, what that means for communities who are already under attack and what can we do to practice mental health and well-being and self-care um, in the age of this virus. And Aisha, I just wanted to ask you, what have you been doing when you get home um, from the phenomenal work that you do? What have you been doing for yourself or even for your family right now? Oh, I think it's uh, it's kind of been hard to to not feel guilty doing that almost mm-hmm. even and still know that it's important and it's something that I need to do to be efficient at my job and not do a disservice by not being able to focus and, and, and do the best work that I can do because mm-hmm. I'm not doing okay. So it's half of it has been trying to get over the guilt of, you know, do I need to put on a face mask right now in the middle of all of this? Um, but I've, I've, I've had, I've realized that, yes, I do. If that's the one thing that I have, you know, at the end of right. like a 14 hour work day, if I have a face mask that makes me feel a little bit better, then that's something mm. that I need to do to keep going. Um, I've tried, I think, really hard to make sure that we are maintaining our friendships and communities that we do have virtually. So, you know, after my defense, my lab normally after a real PhD defense uh, there's a huge celebration and a party Um, so my lab uh, essentially did a a virtual happy hour on WebEx where we just all got on and and you know we had a toast and 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 we talked and we we spent we Um, we had a happy hour and it was good and it was nice and it was heartwarming to have a presence of community even though um, it didn't feel like it was going to happen that people do care and they will show up for you if you tell people what you need um, so I think I've tried to make sure that I'm doing that. Um, also, I'm, I'm spiritual. So uh, I think this has been a good time for me to kind of um, take a moment to pray for, for the well-being mm. of everyone and for the well-being, especially of the people that are affected. Um, and also just, just, you know, make sure we're getting our sleep. I think it's hard to, to be so anxious during whatever's going on right now and still get your sleep, you know, drink the water that you're supposed to be drinking, stay hydrated, stay healthy, uh, work out. So I've been doing like hit <laughs> at home, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to take walks as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I think I found a routine now, you know, where I do a little bit of mm. self-care when I come home, do like skincare stuff. I read. Um, and at the end of the day, I think as long as we're able to still keep going and have hope um, to make sure that our community is doing okay and we're all mm. doing our part, uh, that can only really happen when we're healthy ourselves and we're able to kind of maintain our sanity. Absolutely. All of this. Thank you, Aisha. And what about you, Angie? What have you been doing for self-care? So I'm crafty. So I've been painting a lot more. I make bracelets. Um, Bomb bracelets, watch stuff by the way. Very <laughs> incredible bracelet. She's talented. Stop it. <laughs> um, yeah, and just... I'm going through everything on Netflix, on Hulu, Netflix. So that's been a little bit of disassociating and using my hands mm-hmm. and making stuff, I think, makes me feel relaxed because I focus on the craft. 
I love that. I, I wish I was a bit more crafty, but my left-handed behind won't let me be great with most <laughs> of the crafts. So, yeah, you know, she stays away from that area. But <laughs> I think what I've been trying to do for my own mental health as an extrovert, <laughs> there's definitely been a lot of group FaceTimes with like 10, 15 folks simultaneously, um, some Netflix watch parties reading I don't know for me the news which sounds so weird the news is common to me not all not 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 when 45 is on to be clear but (laughs) just hearing the scientists um speak about it I like to be informed so when I'm informed it makes me feel better about the state of the world right that we at least know what's going on and that there's measures being taken that for some reason makes me feel a little bit better um, yeah, and too. a lot of baths, a lot of baths. That That's my self-care with a nice bath bomb, okay? I, I know that sounds super basic, but that's also been a thing too. Um, but I really wanted to end by asking you both, what have you seen that really reinforces your hope in humanity, not just in this nation, but in humanity? You know, in this time of great hardship for a lot of people, we've also seen incredible acts of kindness and gratitude and folks really finding creative ways to reach their loved ones and really show appreciation. You know, one of the things that I've personally like witnessed and appreciated is DJ D nice. um, And the fact that he was able to bring together 102,000 people virtually for club quarantine. Right. And, you know, (laughs) allow us to just jam out and he did this for days and I don't know where he had the energy to pop up the next day and do it for more hours but it was really beautiful (laughs) and you felt as though you were actually in the presence of people like Michelle Obama okay even though we weren't but that space just created an air and ambiance. So that has been something that I've seen and I've loved um, is the creativity and the passion and folks who normally do this anyway, make it more accessible to folks who might not have otherwise seen it. Um, so how about you two? What have you seen that has really reaffirmed your hope um, in society and that we, in fact, like Kendrick said, we gonna be all right. Starting with mm-hmm. you, um, Angie in New York what have you seen that has you know reinstilled your faith in humanity yeah um I think the way that people show up for each other is really what gets me Mm. there's this stigma that New York City people are rude (laughs) and I'm seeing everybody all over the city show up for each other help people out give a little bigger tip this time than before Mm. I'm seeing restaurants like small mom and pop restaurants raise money for their employees so that they could afford paid sick for them. I'm seeing local DJs fundraise for us on Twitch. Wow. I'm seeing uh, drag queen and kings have Instagram live shows for people for donations for gig workers who don't have support right now. And I think the way that the people show up and still donate and Venmo and help their neighbor Mm. I saw some folks on my Facebook cook a little meal and leave it outside the door for their neighbor and I think those things just really warm my heart and and tell me that we're going to be all right wow that's beautiful how about you Aisha um I think for me it's it's kind of seeing the the heroes that are I already you know look up to just doing whatever it takes Mm. Uh, so healthcare workers um you know, just seeing even friends of mine that are that are physicians and, and friends of mine that are clinical microbiologists that are um, kind of in charge of developing and running these COVID tests and just seeing them honestly work day and night. And, you know, without <laughs> with knowing that they're sacrificing a lot at home, sometimes uh, healthcare workers are at right. risk, considered at risk. So uh, in some cases, I have friends that are working. Uh, day and night shifts and are isolating themselves from their families when they go home and and you know they're in like they're in separate rooms or they're they're not even um you know staying with their family at home anymore because they want to make sure mm-hmm. that they're keeping their family safe so i think 
doing whatever it takes, even if it's getting creative with, you know, masks. I think um, we're now wearing bandanas and um, other things that are clearly not safe. And, and but that's, you know, all you have. And that's that's the best that you have to do to try to figure out how you can make the best of the resources right. you have. It's sad that they're in the situation that they're in, but I'm I'm seeing them uh, not really take anything um, as an obstacle and doing whatever it takes to help the patients that are in front of them and um, really do it at the cost of their own and sometimes Hmm. family's well-being. Thank you both for that, Aisha, Angie. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work that you're doing to ensure that folks have everything that they need to be able to make it out of this thing, hopefully as unimpacted as possible by this pandemic. Thank you both. Thank you from the healthcare perspective. Thank you for the fundraising that you're doing to make sure that our community is good in New York and across the country. And for anyone who is listening, who may be a healthcare worker, who may be an essential employee that's doing work to ensure that we have the food services that we need. Thank you for the Uber drivers who are continually, you know, trying to make sure that they get folk from point A to point B who might be performing these essential services. Thank you to the mom and pop shops who literally, I don't know how, are continuing to have everything fully stocked to ensure that members of the community who might not be able to go to the big box stores are equipped with their supplies as well too. Thank you to the folks who are literally, you know, taking times out of their own days and staying away from their families to go deliver food to the seniors and those who might not be able to go out and get their own meals. And hopefully on that note, it would inspire you all who may be listening to If you can safely distance yourself, um, please ask your neighbors who might be elderly or have a pre-existing conditions if there's anything that you can go out and get, if not order for them on their behalf if they don't have the resources. Stay home. Please stay home um, and pay attention to what's going on in this country, around the world. And also, thank you so much to the folks who are literally leaving their own countries to go abroad to help um, other countries who might be suffering from this pandemic much more than the folks on the ground in their own countries. And I say that because as someone who was born in Belize and Belize has now been you know, testing folks and seeing their first few cases of the virus. We've seen doctors literally come from Cuba and Jamaica to try to assist, um, you know, a smaller developing nation who might not be fully equipped. So thank you. Thank you to everybody that is doing their part. But most importantly, thank you so much to the guests, Angie, Aisha, Dr. Khan, Um, for joining me on this Sunday. I hope everyone who's listening learned something and can take away some resource that they can apply either to their daily lives or just pass along the information. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Undocumented Black Girl podcast. And until next time, bye-bye now. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye.